I'm Alex Ames, and this is Cloister Talk, the Pennsylvania German Material Texts podcast. Welcome to Pennsylvania Germans and Other Early American Ethnic, Racial, Linguistic, and Cultural Communities, a conversation with Dr. Leroy Hopkins. In this episode of the podcast, we'll interrogate traditional assumptions about life in early Lancaster County and early rural America in general by considering how Pennsylvania Germans interacted with other ethnic, racial, and linguistic communities, most notably the African Americans who lived alongside them. This podcast expands on themes explored in my book, The Word in the Wilderness, Popular Piety and the Manuscript Arts in Early Pennsylvania, published by Penn State Press in 2020. Season four of the podcast focuses on pathways for engaging perspectives on Pennsylvania German studies. To learn more about my book, visit wordandwilderness.com. If any single theme or idea emerges from consideration of the history of Lancaster County, it's the possibilities and perils of intense ethnic, racial, linguistic, and cultural interaction. From the earliest settlement of the area by European settler colonizers all the way through to the present day, Lancaster County is a remarkably multifaceted community. Reflective of broader trends in American history, the cultural mixing that occurred in the region resulted in horrifying violence and remarkable displays of the pluralism that in many ways is distinctive of the American experience. My guest on the podcast today has devoted his scholarly career to investigating the interactions of Pennsylvania Germans and Black residents of the county, and what the presence of both of these communities in Pennsylvania can teach us about race, ethnicity, language, and culture in America. A native of Lancaster, Dr. Leroy Hopkins received a BA in German and Russian from Millersville State College in 1966, and a PhD in Germanic Languages and Literatures from Harvard University in 1974. Dr. Hopkins served as Associate Director of Program Planning and then as Active Executive Director at the Urban League of Lancaster County from 1976 to 1979. He then began his tenure at Millersville University in 1979, retiring in 2015 as Professor Emeritus of Foreign Languages. He's done extensive international research to understand the connections between Germans and Black Americans. Dr. Hopkins was most recently featured in Transatlantic German Studies, Testimonies to the Profession, and edited and contributed to the volume Who is a German? Historical and Modern Perspectives on Africans in Germany, published by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies of the Johns Hopkins University in 1999. Thank you so much, Dr. Hopkins, for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. Before we dive into your research, I'm hoping that you can tell me a little bit more about your family background and early experiences in what is often described as Pennsylvania Dutch country. How do you feel that these early experiences shaped the direction, both of your scholarship and your career? Oh, very much so. My family has lived in this area for, since the 18th century. On my mother's side, uh, I have my mother's family Bible, and the earliest birth date is 1777. Uh, my father's uh, side is not as uh, easily documented. I can only go back well, on his mother's side to 1800. But uh, the interesting thing is the the fact that we've always lived here. And what really set me on my course was family reunions. 
I went to my first family reunion when I was 18, and I got to meet cousins who had jobs that were unthinkable where I lived. Growing up in Lancaster, being African-American, the only jobs that were open to me were as menial menial jobs, uh, sweeping floors, maybe running an elevator uh, or shining shoes. But I met cousins who were lawyers and doctors because they lived elsewhere. And that got me curious. And it also sent me off into looking into German. I had German. The, the reason I chose German is sort of serendipitous. Uh, I was in ninth grade and I was in college prep, which meant when I got to high school, I had to take a language. Well, the only languages available were German, French, and Spanish. Latin had been done away with. And uh, so I was in, I didn't know what to take. I was in a music class and the teacher handed out a, a handout about Bach. And there was a footnote and said this was the from the Leipziger Zeitschrift. And I put my hand up and I said, Zeitschrift, does that mean magazine? The teacher said yes. And I thought, well, if I can guess it, maybe I should take German. And so when I got to high school, the German uh, class was actually, I'm surprised that I stayed for three years because it was boring, very boring. Uh, it was basically learning grammar and memorizing vocabulary. Uh, the only time that we actually used the language was in my senior year when the teacher uh, became terminally ill and a student teacher came who was a native speaker and she had us actually use the language. I remember sitting in the front of the class, looking at the class and saying, ich sehe etwas im Zimmer. I see something in the room. And the class would say, ist das groß, ist das klein? And then I would have to respond. And uh, when I got to college, I actually, I wanted to major in sociology, but Millersville didn't have a major in sociology. Well, I had won the uh, the award for excellence in American history in eighth grade from the DAR. I said, well, you know, I'll, I'll take history. I like that. Well, I said, you have to have a minor. So I thought, and I said, well, I sort of like German. And so I took German as a minor. I didn't like the history program, so I switched to German, and that was fortuitous, uh, not because of the first teacher I had, because the first German class I had, we read the last thing we had read in high school, and because we translated every word, I had memorized it, so I got an easy A. But then my, my other class I had with the late uh, Richard Beam, and he spoke nothing but the language. So we sat for a semester and heard nothing but the language. Actually, I had two classes with him in my second semester. And uh, he was the one who started the study abroad program. And uh, I didn't I didn't think I was qualified. And I also had no money because uh, my family was we were working poor. And uh, I had managed to get a job. Uh, I used to tell my students this. I, I went through college with a job that paid $1.38 an hour. Uh, towards the end of my college term, it went to $2.50. But on $20 a week, I paid for college, I bought books and clothes. I don't know how I did it looking back. Uh, but uh, a friend of mine who was from East Berlin, her name was Annelie Dimlich. And Annelie came to me one day and said, Herr Beam, everyone called uh, Richard Beam, Herr Beam. 
Herr Beam says uh, he wants to know why you haven't applied for the program. This was a study abroad program. I said, well, I didn't think I was qualified. More importantly, I, I don't have any money. Well, she said, he said you should apply anyway. Well, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to believe nowadays with the soaring inflation and the cost of travel. But tuition, room and board, and transportation, we went by ship 10 days over, 10 days back. Uh, in 1963, it was $1,500. And I didn't have $1,500. I have maybe $100. Well, what happened was a, a, the mother of a friend of mine had a dinner in my honor, and uh, they charged a dollar a ticket, and I got up $400. I used to tell my students, 400 people wanted me out of town. And so uh, I went to Marburg. That's where uh, Richard Beam had studied as himself as a student. Uh, he was there in the late 1940s. And the director was a class of a friend of his, Gunther Picknese. Herr Picknese was from Gütersloh. And uh, we had to speak nothing but German, which was a task. Of course, we did it when he was, when he was around. But when he wasn't around, we would reverse, revert to English. Well, again, I had no money. Uh, thankfully, uh, we had paid in advance for the uh, for the program. Uh, we paid for three meals, but only two meals were available. Breakfast wasn't available at the Menza, the student cafeteria. So we got that money back. So I lived on 100 marks a month. And uh, I got to the point, I'd go to the bank, and as soon as I walked through the door, they pull out my card, and there was I, I took out 10 marks at a time. And uh, it was, it was looking back, it was interesting. And I, you know, I, I'm still in touch with friends from back then. We call ourselves Ur Marburger. And uh, uh, what the turning point for me was at Christmas time, I had planned to stay in my room because, you know, I didn't know anyone. I had no money to go uh, on trips. And of course, I wouldn't get on skis because I like my bones the way they are. And, uh, so Herr Bickney's uh, arranged it through the experiment in international living. And I ended up going to a town called Winterberg. Actually, it's a settlement outside of Winterberg called Elkerwinghausen. And I stayed with the family Munich. And for 14, about 14 days, spoke nothing but German. Uh, I had a chance to read uh, books in German. And I started something that I can still do. 60 years later, I do German crossword puzzles every day. It's easier now because I can find them online. And so I do three or four crossword puzzles every day. And uh, and so I sort of eased into it. No one came and told me, you ought to become a German teacher. No, I just like German. I didn't want to teach. When I got to Harvard, uh, to my dismay, I discovered that everyone had to be a teaching fellow. And I thought, oh, this is going to be terrible. And uh, I have vivid memories of my first day in the class. Uh, I had to go. It was in Oct early October. And I walked into the class. There were 25 students, about 25 or 30 students. I looked at them. They looked at me. And I thought, well, someone has to say something. So I, I wrote on the board, Guten Morgen. And I had them repeat it. And I said a couple more things. And I thought, wait a minute. I know more than they do. So after that, I was at, at ease. 
and that was 1967. And uh, so I, I, I got, I got away from being shy in front of people before I was petrified to get up and, and talk. But now I've talked to as many as live, 900 and some. And uh, several years ago, I gave a talk. I was invited to the Dauphin County Historical Society. And uh, I was in their library, and there was one person in the audience, but it was on WITF. And I was told afterwards, 10,000 people heard my talk on the Underground Railroad. Wow. So what was it like to go from, as, as you mentioned earlier, when you were a young man living in Lancaster County, living in Lancaster, realizing that your educational and career opportunities were rather limited to having this awakening through seeing some of your relatives who lived elsewhere, that you know, there there could be more opportunities for, for Black Americans you know, in other cities and other regions and in other career trajectories than to end up at Harvard. <laughs> I mean, that must have been quite the, um, shall we say, intimidating experience perhaps oh yes yes i, I spent five years at, at millersville because i wanted to finish my russian major and my my deepest regret is that i didn't learn a russian any better than i did i did have 36 credits so that's 12 classes but uh i had applied to middlebury uh, because they had this excellent uh language program and then uh, as a lark i applied to Harvard and Yale, and uh, Yale turned me down because I didn't have any Latin. Well, Latin wasn't taught in our area, and I didn't have time to take it uh, as an undergraduate. And uh, Harvard accepted me, and I said, "Yeah, sure, <laughs> let me try this." Uh, but my real awareness of uh, race came as a result. Uh, I moved to Germany. Uh, oh, I put. Let me back up a little bit. Uh, while I was at Harvard, I, I decided I was going to do a dissertation on uh, the translations of Alexander Bloch wrote in Russian and uh, a German writer by the name, his name escapes me now, that's how long ago it was, he translated it into German. So I thought, oh, let me do that. But then I realized my Russian really wasn't that good. And uh, a professor of mine, who you know, Frank Trumler, uh, took me out for a beer and said, uh, you know, the paper you wrote about Alfred Dublin, it was pretty good. What do you think about uh, doing a dissertation on that? I said, sure. And so I, I, th I thought about doing the dissertation, but uh, I was going to do it in this country. And uh, I had an opportunity the summer of 1969. I applied for a German academic exchange uh, service uh, uh, grant. D-A-A-D and I came in second there was an interview at, we had spoke for German for about half an hour but that summer I got a job uh, teaching German to Green Berets at the Army Language School which had just opened at Fort Devens, Massachusetts and while I was teaching about halfway through the program our, the chair of the German department at Harvard Jack Stein came to the to the barracks where I was working and said, you still want to go to Germany? I said, yes, you have it. So I, the person who got the uh, the award, Harvard uh, generally received four stipends. 
uh, and uh, the one person had turned it down, and so I got it instead. And uh, I got a surprise. The first time I went, as I said, I went by ship. So I go to New York, have my suitcase ready, and uh, I should have known ships don't sail at midnight. We got on a bus about a little before midnight. They took us to this place. Of, I had no idea where it was. Got off the bus and walked around this wall, and there was a 707. And I said, oh, no, we're flying. My first first time flying, I flew to Germany. It was seven and a half hours. And we landed in Koblenz and uh, spent a week in Königswinter, uh, near Bonn. Uh, Bonn. And uh, there was sort of an orientation to what was going on in Germany, which was unnecessary for me since I'd only been away from Germany for five years. And, uh, and then I went back to Marburg. And then that was the important part. In Marburg, I met my ex-wife. Uh, she was studying medicine. Uh, we're still in touch. As a matter of fact, uh, we were planning to get married again, but our health problems, she had health problems, I have health problems. As a matter of fact, right now she's in the hospital. She lives in Hamburg. Our, our marriage failed primarily because I could not, ex one, one reason was I could not assure her that having uh, biracial children in our area would be a safe thing to do. And that set me thinking. I came back. I got a job with the Urban League. I was in charge of program and planning initially. And I, I sort of challenged myself. You know, I grew up in this area. And I'm supposed to address uh, the root issue, the root, the root causes of poverty and uh, unemployment. And I thought about it, and I, I said it was a problem of identity. Our agency was organized because of a dissertation. A, it was actually a, a, a graduate student from the University of Pennsylvania named Walter Gershenfeld. He had written a dissertation that came out in 1964 called Negro Employment in Lancaster, and found that there was a discrepancy. For the majority community, it was 3%. Uh, for African-Americans, it was 12%, at one of the highest in, in, the, in our area. And what struck me was a statement that Black parents had higher aspirations for their children than the children had for themselves. And I thought, hmm. And that got me interested in doing, finding out there was such a thing as black history. Because by investigating the history of people of color in our area, that might inspire young people to want to achieve. And so that was 1977. And I've been doing it ever since, since 1977. And uh, I, was, uh, I was fortunate. Uh, the Urban League was sort of a launching pad for me. Our executive director uh, resigned in spring of 1979, and I became the acting executive director. And we had a meeting with the governor, the Governor Thornburg. And uh, uh, Governor Thornburg had been the president of the Urban League Board in uh, Pittsburgh. And so the exec from Pittsburgh ran the meeting, and there we were. I was from Lancaster. There was a, another director from Sharon. And the largest one was uh, Philadelphia. So we were allowed one question. And my one question in 1979 was, 
1981, the state was going to celebrate its 300th anniversary. What was going to happen in terms of black history? Governor said, send me a memo. I sent him a memo. I was appointed to the planning committee for this, the tricentennial and also put on the Black History Advisory Committee. And the Black History Advisory Committee, it was the advisory committee to the Pennsylvania Historical Museum Commission. And they, in 1978, they had started the Black History in Pennsylvania conferences. And so I was involved in the 1979 one, uh, two ways, as a part of, as a member of the advisory committee. And also in 1978, I had written a grant, uh, CETA, Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, uh, that was a federal program that gave our area, I think it was $2 million. And you could apply for grants to imp improve uh, work skills and so forth. Well, I applied for a grant uh, for a program twice, was turned down the first time, the second time it was funded, and was to have college students work with high school students to write a history of, of black people in Lancaster. And uh, they did oral histories, they did archival research, went through the newspapers, and I took them to the uh, County Historical Society, as it was called then. And then I also took them to the state archives. Jack Luce, who was the president of the Lancaster County Historical Society, suggested that I take them to Harrisburg. And in Harrisburg, at the state archives, I met, uh, met uh, David McBride. David was an associate historian. And he said, why don't you write an, an article make a presentation at the next Black History in Pennsylvania conference. And I said, well, I'm not a historian. Uh, he said, well, go ahead and do something. So I decided to, uh, uh, it, it was sort of in, uh, re received, I wouldn't say it was received well. It was sort of a curious uh, attempt. I called it, uh, through a mirror darkly, the ideology of Black history in Lancaster County. And basically what I did, I went through all the county histories and pointed out the omissions, uh, what was not written about African-Americans, or more accurately about Africans, since uh, the term African-American is only applicable after 1964, when the vote was secured for everyone who was Black. Before that, you're either enslaved African or free African. And uh, that got me started. and. Uh, I, I brought the, the conference to Lancaster, and uh, we started a African-American Historical Society in Lancaster in 1982. It soon became dormant, and uh, we, we revived it about 2005, and it's still going. Uh, we're 501c3 now. I'm a past president. I served from... 2015 to 2020, and uh, we do downtown tours uh, dealing with uh, African-American history and African history, uh, looking at the Underground Railroad, uh, black, entrepreneur, black entrepreneurs, and uh, uh, the only thing we don't touch on necessarily is the relationship between Africans and Germans. Uh, as you mentioned, this is the Pennsylvania Dutch country. Uh, Germans settled here in 1710. German speakers, I should say, because there was no Germany then. 
And the first group were Mennonites. Uh, the plain sex came. And then you also have the church uh, Germans, Lutherans, uh, Reformed. And uh, just out of curiosity, I, I looked into that. Uh, part of the reason for my interest in uh, relations between Africans and, and Germans is because of my failed marriage. I wanted to find out, you know, what was it? You know, what was the relationship? And part of that, I found out that my my ex-wife, her maiden name is Kienzler, K-I-E-N-Z-L-E-R. That's a variant of Kunzler, which is one of the uh, manufacturers in our area. And she told me that she has uh, two cousins or two families that are related to her. One is Nafziger and the other is Gingrich. And uh, I had some fun with her. I, I went back. We were we were out of touch from 1980 to 1990. 1990, she came to the States. She had remarried. And I met her and her son in New York. And since then, I guess we decided to, that we wanted to be more than just friends about uh, 16 years ago. But it's difficult. When you get to a certain age, uh, in three weeks, I'll be 80. And she just turned 76. And, you know, it's not the same as when you're teenagers or in your early 20s that you can pull up roots and go somewhere else. Right. Uh, but uh, I remember going over in 1996 to visit her in Hamburg. And I was teasing her that uh, her cousin had just been elected Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. And she said he was adopted. And I. I was dumbfounded. That's true, but I, how did she know? Wow. So, Dr. Hopkins, it strikes me that in, in these sort of formative years of your scholarly life and your career, your trajectory was really shaped by two different forces at work. One, of course, being racial politics and cultures in, in Lancaster, sort of the United States broadly conceived, and the post-World War II boom in interest in and funding for transatlantic exchange programs and scholarship um, such that you found yourself in a position where with your interest in the German language and you know, coming out of a place like Lancaster, you had opportunities to put what was happening very locally in this global perspective in a way that it was, was sort of particular maybe to that moment, that post-war moment. And I'm wondering what it was like for you then when you were plotting your career, it sounds like this opportunity at the Urban League sort of presented itself. Did that represent a natural progression for you? Was it a change of plans? Was it a pivot from what you thought you would do with a PhD in German? What was it like to come back to Lancaster? Because I'd imagine with the doctorate from Harvard, your life could have taken any of uh, numerous directions. Oh, sure. Well, let's see, I finished my, my comprehensive exams in the spring of 1969. And at that time, there were no jobs. Doing my doctoral research, I spent that in Germany. And uh, at one point, I sent out uh, letters of application to 300 universities. There were no jobs. And when I came back, I came back, of course, with a fiancé. And uh, it went to the MLA conference in 1970. And <laughs> the only, only job that was appealing was a job at the University of Iowa. And the the chair was very apologetic. 
he was inundated by applications. I sat in uh, on a uh, interview. There were nine of, or eleven of us. Uh, there was uh, someone from Berlin. There was one from Oxford. I was from Harvard. Uh, the the job uh, situation was bleak at that time. Uh, so it was it was not just in in uh, German. Uh, in 1970, the American History Association met in Boston, and there were 4,000 applicants that showed up. Uh, we we called those meetings meat markets because that's where you went to show yourself, and maybe you were lucky to find a job. But 4,000 applicants looking for a, a job in history. There was one job nationally, one only one job, and so the humanities were in a bad way then. Uh, I came back from uh, from Germany. In Germany, I had been unemployed. I was unemployed my first year. I moved there in '72, and uh, I got a I got a job in '70, early '73, teaching English. It was called the Sprachenschule Siegerland. Uh, my ex is uh, from Siegen. She was actually born in Hanau. And Sprachenschule, uh, uh, the leader, uh, the director, his name was Boda, and. Uh, that was that was not satisfactory uh, because I, I couldn't make enough money to pay my student loans. And so I decided I might have to go back home. And uh, I remember going back to Marburg. My ex uh, was still finishing her studies. And I'm listening to the radio. I always listen to AFN, uh, Armed Forces Network. Uh, there was an announcement. Looking for a German instructor at the Drake Edwards Concern in Frankfurt. And I told I said to Ula, her name's Ula, that's my job. So I called, went to Frankfurt, applied for the job, got it. You know, they wouldn't didn't want to turn down a Harvard man. Uh, the problem was for a week I was homeless. I lived on this almost on the street in, in Frankfurt. Uh, and then my future brother-in-law who lived in Schwanheim, which is a suburb of, of Frankfurt, found me a, an apartment. And the issue was, again, this is where I encountered race in Germany. I'd look in the newspaper and there was an apartment that was available. I called them. Oh, yes, yes, this it's, it's here. Five minutes later, I'm knocking on the door. They open the door and look, me, look at me and say, we just rented it. And, uh, and the thing was, in my time in Germany, I was never taken for an African-American. I, I was usually mistaken for an Egyptian. And uh, so the prejudices were not just at, directed at a certain ethnicity. It was at a skin color. And I, I ran into that routinely in Germany. I you've run into it here. It's a human trait, unfortunately. Coming back to Lancaster uh, after a failed marriage, I knew that I could find work here. Because uh, I'm not afraid to do anything. In, in Germany, I even applied to work in a steel mill. And the guy told me, you're too educated. We can't use you. But I said, well, I need the money. Well, I came back and uh, uh, an acquaintance of mine was the president of the board. He was a member of my church. And he said, if you'd come back sooner, we'd have made you the executive director. So I was the associate director. Uh, in that capacity, I was sent to training, management training, and I was also uh, went through a training for a grantsmanship. And I almost destroyed the organization. Uh, I wrote uh, grants, uh, three grants. I was hoping to get one of them. 
Unfortunately, I got all three of them. So we went from an agency with three employees. That was our core. We ended up with 32 employees. And we just weren't able to do that. Uh, I, I expanded the budget from $60,000 to $284,000 in one summer. But that one summer, uh, it was when the history of, of Blacks in Lancaster was written. I also had a program where young people were sent to various social agencies to uh, observe what was going on in that agency. And then they would switch to another agency. And then at the end, they would have uh, information about what sort of career they would like. Uh, that was picked up by another agency. And we, we weren't funded uh, a second time. But uh, I, I was, I'm, I'm glad I worked for the Urban League. But after a while, it became too tedious. I, I noticed that I was spending 60 to 90 hours a week trying to do the impossible, trying to, uh, as an individual, to uh, change our our local society, they come up with a, uh, a a good strategy. What we did primarily was uh, job placement. And I argued vociferously, but in vain, that uh, it was useless to place someone, uh, try to uh, do job placement. There were 13 other agencies that did the same, that the issue was not the availability of jobs. It was the availability of qualified people. And so what needed to be done was we needed to go into the schools and motivate the young people to get the training that was needed. I I did a survey of uh, black students and managed to get a pretty good sample. 25% of all the black students in uh, middle school and high school. And uh, I asked them what subjects were important for careers. And they identified science math, and English. The sad thing was not one of them identified one of those subjects as their favorite. So that's where the the work had to be uh, begun. But we couldn't get funded uh, for that. Uh, That's that's a local problem. The Urban League was organized in 1965, and it died in 2013. Uh, Presently, there's no advocacy group uh, for African Americans in our area. And, uh, you know, and that's part of the problem. Let's pivot now to your research. Now that we have a sort of an understanding of your academic trajectory and how you ended up wanting to investigate more about the interactions between African Americans and, and Pennsylvania Germans, um, in your essay in the 1989 volume "States of Progress," you describe Pennsylvania Germans and Black Americans as "quote unquote" uneasy neighbors. What did you mean by this? And can you give me a sense of what cultural interactions between between these groups were like in the 19th century? Mm-hmm. Well, part of the the reason for the title is my own experience. Uh, growing up in, in Lancaster, I lived in a multicultural section of the city. Uh, we had neighbors who were uh, Russian Jews, Italians, Greeks, uh, Germans. And uh, there was a section of the city uh, it's called Cabbage Hill for obvious reasons. Uh, this is where the, Rome, uh, the Roman Catholic Germans lived. And uh, there were two Catholic churches there. St. Mary's is actually at the foot of Cabbage Hill. And St. Joseph, which was started by Germans who left uh, St. Mary's. 
And there's also St. Anthony's, which is on the other side of town. But growing up, we were warned not to go up on Cabbage Hill because gangs would beat up on you. And, of course, we stayed away from it. Uh, that's no longer the case because now the city has changed tremendously. Uh, one of the things that has always fascinated me is the evolution of Lancaster. Uh, Lancaster as a uh, community starts in 1730. The majority of the people who settled here spoke German, and uh, the English sort of took control. Uh, but the prevalence of German here is obvious in the fact that the English, uh, the Quaker administration of the colony, wanted to start a college for Germans, and uh, it was in Philadelphia. But that became so popular that they kept it, but it was the precursor of the University of Pennsylvania. And so they put a college near where the Germans lived, German speakers lived, and that's Lancaster, Franklin College, named after Benjamin Franklin. And the first president was a Muhlenberg. Uh, his father was the, uh, might say, the, the head of the Lutheran Church in America. And so this was a very German area. Now, some of those Germans own uh, slaves. It's generally accepted that, oh, you know, the Germans were opposed to slavery. Uh, but that's not true. Uh, it denies the nature of slavery. Slavery is not just a racial system. Racism is used to uh, support it. It's an economic system. So those who have the means purchase slaves, in, enslaved Africans. So, for example, in uh, the way you would find out about slavery in our area is you look at the Gradual Abolition Act, which was passed in 1780, and it required uh, slaveholders to register their Africans for, who were slaves for life. And uh, if they failed to register them, they would be free. And so a corollary of that uh, 1780 law was that the children of the enslaved Africans would be indentured servants. And that would mean that they would serve until they were 28 years of age. Well, the life expectancy for Africans then was probably about 30 years. So it was a life sentence. So it was, it was not a, a benevolent law at all. It was a law that took the, the rights of the slaveholder into consideration. And so uh, where there's been uh, friction between the Germans and Africans, not just in Lancaster, Columbia, which is the most important uh, urban center for uh, blacks before the Civil War, uh, you have in 1834, three race riots. And the persons who were pursuing the, the race riots, a number of them were German, and it had to do with economic competition. So that's one of the reasons I chose uneasy neighbors. Now, not everyone was, of course, uh, racist. Not everyone wanted uh, to own slaves. Uh, many Germans did not like slavery, but they didn't want blacks living nearby either. So uh, that's, why, that's why I chose uneasy neighbors. To what extent did the various Protestant religious affiliations in Lancaster and the surrounding area shape the interactions of the Germans uh, with other cultural communities, including the Black community of the time? Is there evidence that, say, the Lutherans felt one way, the Reformed felt another, the Mennonites felt this way, and so on and so forth? Or do the denominational lines and sectarian lines not really predict how a Pennsylvania German 
community or person might feel about the issue of slavery and race in general? Well, that, you know, that's an interesting question because I don't, no one has ever studied that. Uh, there is not a good uh, study of uh, German groups in, in Lancaster City. Uh, normally, uh, research focuses on the plain groups, on the Amish and the Mennonite, but the, the groups that dominated in the city were uh, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, and uh, also Reformed. Now, what I have found, and I don't know if there's enough information to extrapolate any sort of hypothesis, but, uh, for example, uh, Africans uh, were members, I don't know if you can call them members, they received the various sacraments at uh, the Lutheran Church, at the Episcopal Church, and also at the Reformed Church. Uh, a trustee at our church named Robert Boston was born around 1815. He got married at the First Reformed Church in 1837. And he goes on, he's a barber, uh, but he's also involved in the Underground Railroad and becomes a pastor at uh, at. Bethel AME Church, which is my home church, and rises through the ranks. At uh, Trinity Lutheran Church, for example, the same thing happens. Their baptisms, their marriages, their burials. Uh, even when our church was established in 1817, uh, it was established because a committee was set up that went to uh, St. James and went to Trinity Lutheran to ask for permission to start a church, and also for support. They got permission, but no support, no financial support. But when the church was finally finished, it was dedicated in February of 1821. And the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church, Christian Endress, preached the dedicatory sermon. Uh, now, the Lutherans and the Reformed, they owned slaves. Uh, I found that a Moravian, a Sebastian Graf, uh, in 1765, had a slave by the name of Andreas. Now, the interesting thing about the Moravians, uh, of course, the Moravian church, or Unitas Fratrum, or the Mährischen Brüder, uh, they begin in uh, what is now Saxony. Sinzendorf is the titular head of the group. He's not a cleric. Uh, he goes to Copenhagen. His cousin was married to the new king of Denmark. And at that uh, coronation, he meets a, a, a Count Larvik, and Larvik has an uh, enslaved African by the name of Andreas, who is from the Virgin Islands. And uh, Sindendorf asks his permission to take Andreas to his home. He, uh, his home in Saxony was called Herrenhut, uh, and, of course, Herrenhuda is another name for the Moravians. And the Moravians had been thinking about world missions. And so they met Andreas and they decided to go to Greenland, to uh, West Africa, the Caribbean, and North America. And, uh, and of course, in, in North America, Nazareth, Bethlehem, and Winston-Salem, North Carolina, are Moravian settlements. Uh, here in, in Lancaster County, Lidditz is a Moravian settlement. And uh, Sebastian Graf talks about, or is recorded, that he had this slave named Andreas. What fascinates me about the Moravians is how they're involved in the transatlantic uh, movement of, of Africans. Uh, there's the Massachusetts 54th, 
which is the first black regiment raised in the North in the Civil War. And if you look at various sources, there was a member of the of that unit named Philip Becker. And one record says that he was born in Denmark. Another says that he was born in the Virgin Islands. So he was likely a Moravian. And uh, I found records where Mor uh, Moravians would move individuals from Europe to Africa to North America and back. The first story is uh, when they decided on the wor world missions, the missionary was a uh, man by the name of Matthias Fröhlich. And Matthias Fröhlich was sent to the Virgin Islands. And he, just, he thought about a strategy, how to proselytize uh, Africans or Native uh, people, Native Americans. And he thought the best approach would be to marry one. So he married a African woman named Rebecca. That was a big mistake. They were condemned to death because miscegenation was accepted, but not legal. Uh, it just so happened that Sinzendorf was on a world tour and he convinced the authorities in the Virgin Islands to ban uh, Rebecca and uh, Matthias, uh, send them back to Europe. And on the way back, Matthias died and Rebecca was married to a Afro-Dutchman by the name of uh, Jakob Proten. And then Jakob Proten was sent back to the country he was from, what today's Ghana. And he was a missionary there. And uh, a, a former colleague of mine, John Thornton, who is now teaching at Boston University, uh, gave me a copy of a grammar that Jakob Proten had developed of Iwi, which is one of the languages in Ghana. And this, this grammar was created in the 1740s. So it's, it's interesting, these interactions, uh, transatlantic uh, movements and so forth. But coming back to Lancaster County, uh, one of the reasons that I was interested in, in these interactions is I see that in my own family. Uh, my mother's grandmother, her name was uh, Elizabeth Warner, and one of my mother's older sisters, my mother's the 13th child in her family. Eight of the family lived to adulthood, and I got to meet seven of them. And one who was older, um, uh, we called her Aunt Lizzie. Her name was Sarah Elizabeth Pico Reed. Uh, she was born in 1895 and died in 1999. Uh, and she was our family historian. And she told me that the original spelling of the name of my, that'd be my great, great grandparents, uh, was W-O-E-R-N-E-R, Veronor. And I had an opportunity while running the study abroad program. I did that twice in Germany. I went to the Oberhessisches Archiv, which is in Marburg. And uh, I asked uh, Inga Auerbach, who at that time was the assistant director, I think she's the director now, and I asked her about the names. There are two names in our family, Veronor and Stumpf. And Stumpf is a Bavarian name, and Veronor is a Hessian name. And uh, my Aunt Lizzie said that the family was from Dusseldorf, which surprised me because I know my aunt never had German. And how she came across the name Dusseldorf is, is a mystery to me. Uh, one of my cousins contradicted and said no. The family was from Aachen. Well, the distance between Aachen and Dusseldorf is the distance between Lancaster and Philadelphia. And so it's possible. 
but one of the things that I learned in high school, we were doing a, a project. Uh, this is in 12th grade. And we had to use a pseudonym. And from one of the family reunions, I'd learned that uh, my great-grandmother's brother's name was Jacob Warner. And so I took the name Jacob Warner for this project. Well, since then, I've discovered that Jacob Warner was a powwow doctor. Powwowing is a, well, uh, it's a, there's a famous uh, uh, study. There's an essay written by Don Yoder. And Don Yoder was sort of the uh, head or the founder of uh, German folklore studies. They taught at Franklin Marshall and then retired from University of Pennsylvania. But in one of his essays, he says, uh, powwowing is the confluence of African, Native American, and European healing practices in the border area between Pennsylvania and Maryland. Well, that's us. and. Uh, I found out that uh, my great-grandmother's brother had lived with, a, he lodged with her, well, I don't know if there's more than just lodging, with Harriet Sweeney. Harriet Sweeney was born Harriet Richardson, and she lived in the village of Conestoga. Now, Conestoga is three miles from Lancaster and happens to be the area where my mother was born. The Pico family is, is from Conestoga. My grandparents got married in Safe Harbor which is uh, part of Conestoga Township. They got married in October of 1890. My grandfather's line, I can trace that back into Maryland, 1777. Cupid Pico or Cupid Paca or Cupid Peaker. That was my fourth grandfather. And he, there's a mystery about him. That's, that's one of the things about genealogy. Once you start doing genealogy, it's like an addiction. You can't stop. And uh, we, we have no idea who his parents were. We suspect that Cupid may have been the illegitimate son of the governor. Uh, the third governor of Maryland was William Paca. And William Paca was the signer of the Declaration of Independence uh, and the third governor of Maryland. And he also had at least two children out of wedlock. One was black and one was white. So why not a boy? They had two girls and... Uh, as I said, Cupid was born in 1777. And the interesting thing is he's described by uh, a, uh, a researcher. There's a book called The Archaeological History of Hartford County. Hartford County is the county directly south of York County in Pennsylvania. And he's described as being a shoemaker, a stonemason, and a land speculator, which is very unusual for a person of color in a slave state. And uh, the first purchase that I've been able to document, in 1822, Cupid bought 50 acres of land and paid uh, $700 cash. And on that land today is Hosanna AME Church and the Hosanna Schoolhouse, which is the first school for black children after the Civil War. And uh, Cupid's son, Joseph Pico, or Peeker or, or Paca, uh, was one of the, the builders. They got uh, funds from the Freedmen's Bank. And so I, I can trace that on my, my mother's side. My father's side is a little more difficult, but my mother's side is where the German comes in. My great-grandfather's name was Jacob Stump. He was born reportedly in Cresswell, which is near Millersville. I live just outside of Millersville. And he was born in 1820. 
Uh, he was a uh, an artisan. Uh, he painted fractures. I haven't been able to find any. So there, there's some German element. And my family is not unique. I found others who have German element, Africans, African-Americans who have German elements. And of course, when I when a, a colleague at Millersville, she was an adjunct, and she was an excellent teacher in the classroom. We tried to keep her. And so one of the ways we were going to keep her was send her to run the overseas program. And while she was in Germany, 1985 to 1986, uh, a book was published called Farbe Bekennen. Uh, Farbe Bekennen was translated in 1992 to Showing Our Colors, Afro-German Women Speak Out. And that's when I found out she sent the cover of the book to me. And that's when I found out about the Afro-Germans. And uh, as soon as I could, I went to Germany. I was in Germany from 1986 uh, to 87. And uh, I decided I wanted to do research on this. And since I already had a uh, Dankstipendium, that's what the German Academic Exchange Service had given, it was uh, to repay the uh, Marshall Plan. And so I applied to DAD again. This time I wanted to spend a semester on sabbatical and then spend a year running the, the overseas program. Well, the university would not give me the uh, sabbatical. I wanted it in the fall. Instead, I got two summer sabbaticals, which I never really understood how that happened because our fall semester was 15 weeks long. Instead of giving me 15 weeks, they gave me two 10 weeks. So I ended up with that money. I applied for a, a study visit grant, and I had my regular salary. So I went to Germany. I spent the summer of 1989 in Germany. The summer before, I wrote to every archive. Uh, in East and West Germany, there were 34 archives, and I got responses from 17 of them about, do you have any information on Africans in Germany? And... Uh, 17 said yes. And matter of fact, they sent me Xeroxes of the, of the information. So I used that to apply for the, uh, the study visit grant. And I came back from Germany in the fall of 89 with 125 books, microfilm, all kinds of material. And I was fortunate in 1990, I guess it was the fall of 1990. I ran into a rarity, another African-American who was teaching German, Beverly Harris-Schentz, who is now retired. She was teaching at the University of Pittsburgh. Her husband is German. And she told me about a, a workshop that the late George Peters was running at the University of Michigan State University. And it was about diversity in German. So I applied to it, was accepted, I went to Michigan State. And in the workshop, he talked about diversity, a new issue in Unterrichtspraxis, one of our professional journals. And I said, George, would you be interested in an article about Africans in Germany? He said, yes, but we needed it in, I think it was something like a month. I said, that's no problem. So I went home. I wrote the article in about a, less than a week because I had all the material there. And I included a bibliography of 50 items books that I had brought back with me. And I sent it off, forgot all about it, and was busy doing something. And uh, Mike Lutzler gave me a call. 
And he said, congratulations. I said, for what? What 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 happened? My article was chosen as the best in the Unterrichtspraxis, and I won a free trip to Germany. And uh, and he invited me to come to the MLA, which was in Toronto, and to give a talk about uh, Afro-German literature. Well, I said, well, at first I demurred and said, they only came out in 1986. This is 1990. You know, four years is not enough time to develop a Goethe. Oh, he said, well, do, do something. So I, I did. And then I was invited to Washington uh, University. And uh, my, my first German publication, I had to give the talk in German. <laughs> and I, I, I felt what my students felt. It's one thing to teach German. It's another thing to write German. And so the, the article was published in English and also in Germany, in Fischer Verlag. And uh, I have a copy of it somewhere on my book bookcase, and uh, and I think success breeds success. If you have success, get something published. Then after a while, you want to do some more. You want to do some more. While I was there in the summer of '89, I contacted the late Uta Saji, who had written books on the image of the black on the on the uh, German stage in the 18th and early 19th century, and. She and her husband, she was uh, she had a dual professorship, uh, Leipzig and uh, Dakar in Senegal. And I wrote to her and I said, you know, have you published anything recently? I'm working on Frederick Douglass. And she said, who's Frederick Douglass? Uh, would you write an article about it for uh, she published? Uh, it's called it was called Etude germano Africain." Uh, black German studies. And uh, I said, well, I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence by writing something you can look up on Google or in a, in a, uh, a lexicon. I'll talk about his reception in Germany. So I, I wrote this article, and it's, it was published in uh, Etude Germano-Africain. I'm curious to learn more about some of the important Black Americans who lived in Lancaster County, whom you've explored in your research. Can you tell me a little bit about Stephen Smith and William Whipper? Sure. Stephen Smith was born uh, in uh, Pakistan, which is today uh, Harrisburg, and uh, his mother was enslaved. And so he was. his time was bought. Uh, he was an indentured servant. He was born in 1796. And in 1801, he was bought by Thomas Bode, who was a uh, colonel in the Revolutionary War, later became a general, uh, and uh, was a, a political representative. He, he served uh, for uh, Lancaster and Chester County in Congress. And in 1801, he bought uh, Stephen. And uh, there's a story that... Uh, he bought him, but not his mother. And the mother escaped and came to uh, be rejoined with her with her son. And her owner, the, the family name was Cochran, came after uh, her. And uh, there was resistance. She didn't want to go back. And supposedly, well, Bode then uh, allegedly bought her freedom. And uh, supposedly, local, some local sources said this is the beginning of the Underground Railroad, but there's no proof of that. It's more anecdotal than uh, factual. Uh, but Stephen Smith was allowed 
to manage his uh, master, in other words, the say, Thomas Bode's uh, lumber yard. And he was very good at it. He was allowed to keep some of the profit so that by the time, by 1815, when he was 20 years old, he's a property owner. He buys his freedom, the freedom of his wife-to-be, and then sits out to acquire property. Now, the interesting thing is there's no record of him attending any school. Uh, but the, what contemporaries said that he had an innate ability of accessing the value of something. And so he begins uh, buying property. And it's one of the reasons that the race riots occur in the 1830s is because the black population of Colombia, which was almost 20% of the borough, uh, was getting quite prosperous. William Whipper, on the other hand, was born free. We have no idea who his parents are. Uh, with Stephen Smith, we did a, uh, our African American Historical Society had uh, a Underground Railroad tour in Columbia, and a descendant of the Bode family uh, was there and said that, according to family tradition, Stephen Smith was the son of Thomas Bode, which is not unusual. You know, I, I tell anyone who'll listen, from 1790 to 1820, the black population of this country increased by 250%, and three-fifths of that was mulatto. So there was always, there's always been mixing of the, of the races. Uh, it's just like a friend of mine once said, if they didn't do it, they wouldn't ban it. And of course, uh, mixed uh, marriages were were banned until 1967 when the Supreme Court. And uh, the interesting that one of the plaintiffs' name was Loving, and uh, they allowed uh, mixed marriages. Well, William Whipper was born probably in Drumore Township. That's in the southern part of the uh, Lancaster County. And we know almost nothing about his background. A researcher uh, com uh, maintains that his father was a minister named Francis Latta. Uh, a white man, in other words. And uh, both he and Stephen Smith were mulattoes, mixed race. Uh, we, what we do know about uh, William Whipper is that he's in Philadelphia, and uh, William uh, Wilberforce dies in 1832, I think it is, or 1833, and William Whipper holds a eulogy. He gets involved in the Negro Convention movement, which began in 1830. And the bishop of our church, Richard Allen, uh, grew alarmed because of the anti-Black feeling that was surging everywhere. Uh, in 1829, uh, the state of Ohio wanted to ban all all Blacks from the from their state, and so Allen called together all of the progressive forces in in the Black community, and they came from Maryland and from all over the North. Uh, to strategize on how to survive. Uh, one of the things that was uh, a, a general movement at that time, in 1817, the American Colonization Society had begun. And what the American Colonization Society uh, planned was the best way to solve the race problem was to send all people of color back to Africa. Well, uh, that was uh, viewed uh, rather negatively by the AME Church. African Methodist Episcopal Church, which I'm a member. And uh, others saw that as a ploy 
uh, and uh, at a meeting in in March of uh, of eighteen seventeen, there was a meeting at uh, in Philadelphia, and uh, James Fortin uh, led that meeting, and uh, they decided that you know we built this country with our blood, sweat, and tears, and we're not leaving. Uh, later, when the pressure increased, uh, you know, urban riots began in the late 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, uh, they began to think, well, perhaps if we can't survive here, uh, we'll go to Canada or we'll go to the Caribbean. Uh, Stephen Smith, for example, was involved in a meeting in Columbia in 1824, uh, and they were discussing a, a colony in Haiti, and actually some men went to Haiti or took their families along and that was disastrous because they weren't used to the climate, and some of the some of their families died. But Canada was much more conducive, and and of course there were black people already there. After the Battle of Yorktown, the British left with ten thousand Africans. The majority ended up in Nova Scotia. Some left from Nova Scotia and went westward to Upper Canada, today's Ontario. Uh, a number of the blacks in Nova Scotia helped form the colony of Sierra Leone. Uh, and of course, what fascinated me was the fact that 200 Africans returned with Baron Ridesel uh, uh, to Europe. And they were in the garrison town of Kassel. And I, the records for that garrison were in the uh, Oberhessisches Archiv in Marburg. And I, I, I went through that and uh, found some interesting information. Uh, one of the uh, one of the Africans who settled there, his granddaughter died in 1823 and was buried in Marburg, but I couldn't find her grave. Uh, in in Germany, as you I'm sure know, that uh, a burial doesn't mean you'll be there forever. Uh, you have to pay uh, every so often. It's not like in this country because of the the lack of territory, and so. Uh, I know that I know the cemetery where she was buried, but there's probably no no record of her body anymore. But uh, now talk so much, I got off the line. <laughs> oh yeah, we're talking about Stephen Smith and William Whipper. Uh, well, Whipper and uh, and Stephen Smith are tied together. Uh, William Whipper married Harriet Smith, who was the half sister of Stephen Smith. Stephen Smith was. Uh, ordained as a deacon in the Amy Church in the 1830s. And after the race riots, and not because of them, he moves to Philadelphia because there was more opportunity to make money there. But he set up a company in 1841 called uh, Smith and & Whipper. And they were fabulously wealthy. During the 1850s, the company uh, grossed $50,000 a year. Uh, when Stephen Smith died in 1873, his estate was valued at about $600,000. Now, uh, William Whipper goes to Columbia. He's involved in the American moral reform movement. Uh, what they were trying to do was uh, they believed they could solve the, the racial problem by becoming better than the white people. In other words, they they preach temperance. Uh, they would not buy anything that's produced by slave labor. 
and uh, just living the uh, good life. And uh, uh, William Whipper edited uh, the magazine. I have a, a copy of it, and it's the first black magazine. And it was published here in Lancaster County. Uh, he was the correspondent from uh, Columbia. Uh, he gets involved in the Underground Railroad. Uh, one of the early documents of the Underground Railroad is William Still's book, The Underground Railroad, which came out in 1872. Uh, if you're interested, if your listeners are interested in William Still, uh, just look at the movie Harriet. Harriet Tubman comes to Philadelphia, and there's William Still. William Still was born in New Jersey, and in 1847, his parents were escaped slaves, by the way. Uh, in 1847, he was hired by the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society. And then in 1850, when the Fugitive Slave Act was, was passed, what that act said was that uh, before you had the uh, 1793 uh, Fugitive Slave Act, which required the return uh, of, uh, they call them fugitives from labor. Slavery is not mentioned in the Constitution. They're called fugitives from labor. They had to be returned. Well, what happened uh, is the Edward Prigg case. Edward Prigg uh, was from Hartford County. And just an aside, uh, my great, my fourth grandmother's name was Nancy Prigg. And I think she was probably enslaved by Joseph Prigg, who was the brother of Edward. Edward was... Given was asked by a neighbor to go to York County to kidnap a fugitive slave and bring her back uh, into slavery. He did that. He was prosecuted by the state of Pennsylvania, and the case went all the way to this uh, U.S. Supreme Court. In 1842, the Supreme Court said uh, that he was exonerated. What he did was not kidnapping, but they said something very important is that the responsibility for returning fugitive slaves was not that of the state, but of the federal government. And so many of the northern states passed personal liberty laws. Pennsylvania already had them. And so Pennsylvania became more attractive to people who wanted to escape slavery. And uh, that's what William Whipper says in a letter that he sent to William Still. And what's interesting, the, you see the importance of uh, uh, William Whipper is that in his book, William Still talks about the key persons, the station masters of the Underground Railroad. And William Whipper is the only one from Columbia. And Columbia, by consensus, is the most important area for the Underground Railroad because uh, you had a large black population. As I said, 20% of the population was black. And in the letter to William Still, Whipper says after the Prig case, he gave $1,000 a year of his own money to support fugitives. And then when the war broke out, he gave another $1,000, where he gave $1,000 to support the Union effort. He didn't believe things would change. His sister, Mary Ann, married a man named John Hollingsworth, and they moved to Canada. Uh, Canada, again, was the uh, drawing point. Uh, two friends of mine are uh, the curators of historic Buxton. 
Buxton was set up by Lord Elgin, and it was set up primarily to uh, assist those escaping slavery. It's an hour east of uh, Detroit. And uh, back in 2000, actually it was in the fall of 1999, uh, we were doing an Underground Railroad uh, conference at Millersville. And one of my colleagues, Tracy Weiss, who's retiring this year, uh, she set it up. And we did a video conference with Brian and Shannon Prince, who are the curators at Buxton. And uh, I got the idea, why can't we go and visit? So we got a Millersville van and uh, we drove. Well, I didn't drive. I'm not a driver. Uh, But we left at uh, nine o'clock in the morning, got there at three o'clock in the morning. You had to drive up through Buffalo uh, to get there. And uh, it was homecoming. Uh, Labor Day weekend is when the descendants of fugitive slaves who lived in, who found refuge in Buxton would come back and professors from the nearby universities would give talks about that issue and slavery in Canada and so forth. I listened to one professor speak and afterwards I went up to him. His name was Stauffer. And I said to him, you know, Stauffer, that's a Lancaster County name. He said, I know, that's where we're from. And they were a part, uh, a, a local man by the name of Christian Eby led a group of Mennonites to Canada just around the time, it was about 1813. Uh, there's a book about it called The Trail of the Black Walnut. And so there was a, Charles Drew was his name. In 1859, uh, he wrote a book, he published a book called The North Side View of Slavery, and he toured the Canadian provinces and uh, interviewed uh, fugitive slaves. And a number of them said uh, it was because of the Dutch who helped them. And by Dutch, they meant Pennsylvania Germans. Uh, in in Ontario, there's a section called Queen's Bush, and that's where uh, the Mennonites from Lancaster County settled. And the river there is called Conestoga. And, of course, we have the Conestoga River here. And so there's this connection. Uh, I've always been interested in the connection between Pennsylvania and uh, Ontario. Fascinating. So I have one final question to ask you, which is, what do you think are the next steps in researching and understanding the connections between Uh, Pennsylvania Germans and Black Americans in Lancaster County, and better understanding, more generally speaking, the cultural pluralism of Lancaster County and sort of the the Pennsylvania hinterland surrounding Philadelphia. You've obviously in your career undertaken a huge amount of this work and have found, identified so many important stories that um, shed light on this topic. What more needs to be done and, and, and how would one go about doing it? What's the next stage in this in this project? Well, one of the the next stage is just more research. Uh, there are 2,000 cemeteries in Lancaster County. A friend of mine uh, did an excellent guide that was published in 1984. Hunter Reinier uh, was the, uh, the author. And so there was very little known. Uh, about the interactions, there's a need to go to the churches and look at their pastoral records, and then from that extrapolate. For example, just give you a for instance. About 12 years ago, 
there was a serious fire at a, at a Amish school. And they interviewed one of the alumni from that school, a person who was in the, probably in the early 80s. He was black. And he talked about going to school there. And I thought, oh, wow. Because in the Amish schools, they don't teach in English. They teach in German or, or Pennsylvania German. And uh, so I've, I've always been, I'm on the outlook or, or on the, not the outlook, I'm on the search for those sort of connections. For example, I've done research in Lebanon County and the, the Lebanon County Historical Society in their journal had a story about uh, a, a, a clash between a black man and a German man. That nothing, they didn't come to blows. It was just, they were at uh, loggerheads because the black man wanted to, wanted to pray and he play, prayed too long in the service. Now, this is a service in German. And, and I thought, oh, wow. And then there was a story about a, a black uh, resident of Lebanon who was a powwow doctor. And so Mark Harmon, no, no, not Mark Harmon. What is his name? Oh, I've forgotten his last name. Uh, he's the director of the Max Cotta Institute at the University of Wisconsin. He's written an article about the interaction of African-Americans and, and, and Germans. And one of the ways that you can see this interaction is in the language. Uh, so you have African-Americans speaking. Uh, one of the things that happened in our area in the 60s, when soul food became popular, it was not something that we ate. What we ate is primarily German things. Sauerkraut, I grew up eating sauerkraut. Uh, ham hocks, of course, that's a little bit soul food. Uh, but uh, my, my parents liked sauce. Schweinekopfsuse, uh, called in German, and Scrabble. Those were the things we ate. I still like uh, apple butter with uh, cream cheese. Mix that up. That's something my mother ate. And those, those are, you know, that's how the, the groups interact. And as I said, there's 2,000 churches. That means there's at least 2,000 uh, or 2,000 cemeteries. There are at least that number of churches. And their records have to be looked at. And uh, there are also inter, uh, there are connections between counties. My family is in York County, Lancaster County, Chester County, Delaware, and into Philadelphia. And there's a uh, activity there that no one has really looked into. And I think there's more to be found. One of these days, we're going to find something that'll say, "Oh, wow!" For example, I just I'm joining the group. There's a man from our area. Actually, he was born in Chester County, but his business was out, was run in Lancaster County, William Chester Ruth. And his father was enslaved in South Carolina. And uh, William Chester Ruth was a self-taught blacksmith, but also an inventor. He invented uh, farm machinery, got over 50 patents, and during World War II, he was engaged by the government uh, on, for defense contracts, bomb sites, and so forth. And his main clients, he, he had his uh, shop in the Gap, and most of his clients spoke German. So there's those inter interactions that uh, need to be looked at. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not restricted to one area. 
wherever wherever there are groups that live next to each other, you're going to find interactions, uh, be they sexual or otherwise. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Hopkins, for sharing your research and scholarly insights with me today, as well as some information about your own life story. It's always fascinating to learn more about how someone sort of decides on a scholarly path. And certainly the work that you have done opens up so many new lines of inquiry um, into traditional fields that one might think wouldn't necessarily have you know, more work to be done in them. Your career has demonstrated um, the possibility of sort of taking a different lens to a topic and finding those cultural interactions. So I really appreciate your sharing all of this today. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to Cloyster Talk. If you enjoyed this episode, I urge you to take a look at Dr. Hopkins' essay from 1989 titled Uneasy Neighbors, Germans and Blacks in 19th Century Lancaster County, which you can find in a book edited by Randall Miller titled States of Progress, Germans and Blacks in America Over 300 Years, published by the German Society of Pennsylvania. Of course, I hope you will also consider reading my book, The Word in the Wilderness, Popular Piety and the Manuscript Arts in Early Pennsylvania. To purchase a copy, just visit psupress.org, or you can also request it from your favorite local bookseller or library. Please note that Penn State Press is a nonprofit scholarly publisher and part of the Penn State University Libraries. Your purchase of the book supports the work of nonprofit peer-reviewed academic publishing a vital component of the United States information landscape in the 21st century. Please also check out the new Word in the Wilderness official study guide available at wordinwilderness.com clubs, which can help structure your reading of the book and point you in the direction of further resources. Research and production of season four of Cloyster Talk was supported by the Jacob M. Price Digital Fellowship at the William L. Clements Library, a rare book and manuscript library at the University of Michigan that specializes in print and manuscript materials on the history of North America and the Caribbean, with particular strengths in 18th and 19th century American history. Learn more at clements.umich.edu. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to continuing our conversation on the next episode of Cloister Talk.